some of the great cities of the world are known for major landmarks in those cities, like uh, Paris, for example, it's known for the Eiffel Tower. Rome has the Colosseum. San Francisco has the Golden Gate Bridge, and so on and so forth. But even tiny towns can develop some notoriety as a result of landmarks that they have as well. For example, tiny little Darwin, Minnesota, population 348 as of the last census, has a claim to fame that is somewhat unusual. It is a giant ball of twine. Maybe you've been there, maybe you've seen it. It's 11 feet tall, it measures 40 feet around, it weighs a whopping 8.7 tons. Even more incredible is the fact that all of that is the work of just one man, Francis Johnson. He spent four hours a day for 29 years winding twine into a ball that just kept growing and growing and growing. Johnson, who was a bachelor farmer, apparently had a lot of time and twine on his hands. <laughs> he started the project in 1950. He didn't stop until 1979 when he was 74 years old. His nephew, Harling Johnson, said he just couldn't handle it anymore. For 15 years, it was listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the biggest ball of twine in the world. Now, Mr. Johnson died in 1989, but his legacy lives on in Darwin. His twine ball now sits tall and proud on display in downtown Darwin, enclosed in its own uh, purpose-built structure. And every year in Darwin, they have a celebration on the second Saturday in August that they call Twine Ball Day. Now you know where to go on your next vacation. But that kind of phenomenon is not really a new thing. Uh, in fact, from early on, people have wanted to make names for themselves. They've wanted to exalt themselves and be known for something, usually something more significant than a giant ball of twine. But nonetheless, people have wanted to elevate themselves, distinguish themselves from all the rest, make a name for themselves, and in pride and, and arrogance, they assert themselves toward that as a part of human existence. In fact, the height of human hubris is as high as the heavens. But God is higher still. And God is able to humble us whenever that might become necessary. This morning, I'd like to invite your attention with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and the story will be familiar to many of you who have long association with the church. It's quite well known, but it teaches us a lesson that even in our modern day, we desperately need to learn. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word for us from Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. 
They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> As I said, this is an old and a well-known story, but what are we to make of it? What are we to learn from it? Is it intended to be read just as a, a fable of some kind, ancient man's attempt to explain the diversity of language and culture in the world? Or could there be more to this story than meets the eye? Well, obviously it isn't possible for humankind to build a tower to heaven. Uh, even the ancients would have known that. In fact, even I knew that as a boy when I first encountered this story in Sunday school probably. I knew it was, wouldn't be possible to build a physical tower that would ascend to God's place. So there must be more to the story than meets the eye, more than it might appear. And the truth of this passage does indeed extend beyond a simply literal interpretation of the text. This is a recounting of a deeper truth that's been part of humanity's history and existence ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. We're going to explore that truth a little bit this morning. Now, as we look at the text, we see in verse 2 that uh, human beings came to this plain in Shinar. Now that's a reference to Lower Mesopotamia or to Babylonia, as it's widely known also. The greatest city of the area was Babylon. Babylon was the heart of the ancient world. It was the center of power. And everyone would have known about the immense towers of the Babylonian ziggurats that we study back in school. I think there are still ruins of those that you can visit if you like. So from the perspective of human achievement, Babylon was the summit. It was the height. The word Babel for the Babylonians means gate of the gods. A gate is an access point, a place from which I suppose one could ascend to the place of the gods. But the Hebrew Scriptures took a decidedly different view on the topic. In Hebrew, a word sounding like Babel means mix up or confusion. So, in other words, the significance of the great Babylon from the perspective of God's heavenly court is merely confusion, discord. Now, 
The fundamental sin in this story is the same one that first appeared back in the garden, back when human beings asserted themselves and disobeyed, rebelled against the direction of God. We find it here. It's the sin of hubris or pride as it is more widely known. Pride is a pervasive sin in the human experience. Even little children fall prey to the sin of pride. A woman named Kayleen Royser of Bluffton, Indiana, wrote into a Christian publication one time with a story about something that had happened uh, with her children. She says, My first grader came home and proudly reported to her dad that she was now officially a brownie in the scouting organization. Well, she said, not to be outdone, her three-year-old brother Christopher rushed up to dad and proudly announced that he was a cupcake. <laughs> On the hierarchy of, of treats, I suppose Christopher saw the cupcake as higher than a brownie. But uh, as long as we can remember boys on the playground have been saying to one another, my dad can whip your dad, uh, all except the one little boy who said, big deal, so can my mom. <laughs> Even as children, we look for something to distinguish ourselves, something we can brag about, be proud about, uh, exalt ourselves with. Notice the pride that is in evidence in this story. In verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let's do this for us. Let's build a name for us, for ourselves, to distinguish ourselves. There's pride in that. Their attention is focused entirely on themselves, which is really the essence of sin. Now, John Stott says it was William Temple and his writings that taught Stott as an undergrad student what the Bible means by sin is really self-centeredness. Temple, in his little book, Christianity in the Social Order, says, I am the center of the world I see. And where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by broadening my horizon of vision, like a man climbing a tower who sees farther in terms of physical vision, while remaining himself the center and the standard of reference. I am the center of the world I see. And Stott says that's what the Bible means by sin. Luther talks about man curved in on himself. Malcolm Muggeridge talks about the dark little dungeon of my own ego. That is sin, Stott says, a twist of self-centeredness that has us imprisoned. But God's order is that we love Him with all our being, and then that we love our neighbor and put ourselves last. Sin is the reversal of the order putting ourselves first. And so it is with these Babylonian builders. They want for themselves what isn't supposed to be theirs. 
by means of a tower to the heavens. Now, heaven is God's place, not man's place, but they want it. They want to go there. They want to have it for themselves. Now, in our day and time, we laugh at the thought of building a tower to the heavens. But all the while, we're trying to do the very same thing. This story speaks directly to our modern culture, where we have pushed God aside and elevated to His place our own creation, our own technology, a technology that we think will be our Savior, something we have done ourselves and for ourselves. And these builders had discovered the technology that allowed them to bake bricks and so to build where there was no stone available. And they thought that the technology they had created would allow them to construct something that would permit them to ascend to the place of God. In our time, we've discovered the technology that allows us to modify genetics and to split atoms. And we think that it empowers us to be gods ourselves. But we delude ourselves. The old preacher Vance Havner said of all the illusions and fantasies and farces of human history, the biggest mirage of all is what we call progress. Just because we split the atom and are back from the moon, we've given God His walking papers. We've decided we can work out our own salvation and that science has the answer to sin. And so we proclaim ourselves to be devoted to science, but we've stopped asking the question, what is truth, which is ultimately the pursuit of science, to discover truth. We don't ask that question anymore. Instead, we ask, what is useful? What will help us? And the only truth that we're interested in is whatever truth suits our purposes. In fact, we have fallen so far that if it suits our purposes, we don't even care if it's true or not. We will use it nonetheless. If it elevates us over our opponents, if it helps us build our towers to the heavens, well then that's all that counts. And we are just like these sinful builders trying to elevate and exalt ourselves. But in truth... Our tower is nothing but a puny joke. Did you notice in verse 5 that the tower is so small that God has to come down even to see it? That's how small it is in comparison. We think we've built something enormous, but God has to come down and and squint even to see it. That's how far God is above man. Man in his arrogance is like a haughty child who thinks that the world revolves around him and never realizes how utterly dependent on God he really is. But God steps in and God judges the hubris of humanity. There are references to various instances of that in the Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 14, for example, there is a, a passage that 
speaks to that. Some have interpreted it as the backstory of Satan, Lucifer, and his fall. Others have said, no, it, it it's relates to the fall of the king of Babylon. Whatever it relates to, it, it, it tells us what happens, what God does when we exalt ourselves and assert ourselves. It says, Isaiah 14, beginning verse 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, when she went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and broke into praise of God. She speaks of God's humbling the proud and exalting the, the lowly and the humble. She says, God has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Perhaps she had in mind what God did here in this story, confusing the language of the people. And in that confusion, the, it results in discord and scattering of all the people, the confusion that existed amongst them. They couldn't stay together. Now the text portrays this as a proactive judgment of God. But in truth... Whenever God is not the center, discord and confusion are inevitable. They cannot be avoided in the world and in our lives. Confusion results when God is moved out of the center of our focus and our attention and our pursuit. And the confusion that started in, in Babylon persists. The German theologian Helmut Thielicke went on a trip to Asia and he said that the only expression he understood in every language was Coca-Cola. That was it. He said, what's wrong with a world in which this is the only word that has survived the Babylonian confusion of tongues? We can still talk to one another about Coca-Cola, but not about freedom. Not about God, not about what a neighbor is. Why? Because we've tossed God aside. We've pushed Him out. God is no longer in the center where He belongs. We eliminate God from our, from our public and private consciousness. And what goes with Him is any sense of divine judgment as well. And then we wonder why people have no reservations about shooting up an elementary school with an assault rifle. Why not? There's no God, so there's no divine judgment. There's no purpose. There's no reason. There's no meaning to our existence, so why not? Why exercise any restraint at all? But judgment does come, all right. But I want you to know that there is more than judgment that is going on here. 
even in judgment, we see that God is gracious. Verse 6 implies that God is acting to preserve man by protecting him from himself. If they're able to do this, then there will be no evil beyond their capacity. Some restraint must be enacted. There's an indication that if man were not restrained in some way, his pride and his evil would reach a kind of a critical mass that would ultimately destroy him. And certainly that would, that would happen. We're still in danger of it. Just this week, Vladimir Putin has threatened, as he has before, the use of nuclear weapons, saying, the rest of the world, you better be careful. This is going to start World War III. We're still faced with destroying ourselves, even in the light of the restraints that God has placed upon us. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So how can we keep from falling? How can we learn the lesson of the Tower of Babel and keep our pride in check and our hubris in check? Well, one of the things we can do is to heed the instructions that we find in Scripture. In Romans 12, 3, the Bible says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't delude yourself. Assess yourself accurately and you will remain humble. Sometimes we need others to help us with that sober judgment. In 1945, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, rather unexpectedly died, the Vice President, Harry Truman, was thrust into the office of the Presidency. And Sam Rayburn, the legendary speaker of the United States House of Representatives, who held that office longer than anyone before him and longer than anyone has since, Rayburn pulled Truman aside and he, he said, Listen, from here on out, you're going to have lots of people around you. They'll try to put up a wall around you and cut you off from any ideas but theirs. They'll tell you what a great man you are, Harry. But you and I both know you ain't. <laughs> Neither are we. Neither are we, no matter how much we may convince ourselves otherwise. Even the very best among us is still just a sinner saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We have no basis, no foundation upon which to be proud or arrogant or self-righteous in any capacity to any extent. We should instead humble ourselves and submit to the rule of God in our lives, and God will take care of the rest. If God wants us to have a name, He'll take care of that. But even if He doesn't, I bear the greatest name ever spoken in existence, the name of Jesus who owns me, body and soul. God will take care of us if we submit ourselves to Him. 
In 1 Peter 5, the Bible plainly says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may exalt you in due time. Humble ourselves before God, and let God exalt us when God feels the time is right. After all, God can lift us higher than we could ever lift ourselves anyway, can't He? That's the smart thing to do. That's what Jesus did. Jesus left the glories of heaven. He emptied Himself, the Scripture says, Philippians 2, to come and to live as one of us in humility. And what did God do? Jesus bore the shame of the cross, and yet, God has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and proclaim that Jesus is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. If we'll follow Jesus' pattern, Jesus' path, rather than the path of these self-centered Babylonian builders, God will exalt us when he feels the time is right. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the lessons of your word, even these ancient texts that speak to us of problems that persist even into our generation. Father, they are characteristic of sinful human arrogance and pride. I pray, Lord, that we might acknowledge before you our need for you, our dependence on you, that your word is absolutely true when it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior, and we are so grateful that you have sent us one in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we might humble ourselves and be obedient to follow Jesus as Lord, to give you the throne of not only the universe, but the throne of our lives as well. And let you guide us where you wish for us to go. And God, we will give you the praise and the glory for what you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.